0: Christians are commanded to build their lives on the Word of God, but yet with over a hundred English translations of the Bible and more being added all the time, how do we avoid building our life on shifting sand? Welcome to the Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn.
1: I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill, and I'm Joshua Horn.
0: So, in this episode, we want to talk about what makes a good Bible translation a bad Bible translation. But more and more companies are printing more and more Bibles, there's more and more translations, there's over 100 English translations. And so we should start the discussion with, is this a blessing or a curse for the church?
1: So I don't think there's a, a super simple answer to that question, and just like, oh, it's the whole thing's a blessing or the whole thing's a curse. I do think you could probably come up with a general answer to the question, that there are real aspects of curses in where we've come into our, you know, at this point in, our, in the translations. But When you think about translations, I think people see translations out there and they think, oh, I like this for this reason. I like this for this reason. And they don't actually step back and realize that people print Bibles for lots of different reasons than for the good of the church. And so I think that's useful to start this off as going, translations have their place, and the Holy Spirit is is what should be driving those translations. The Holy Spirit says there's a need here. There's a need for a Bible to be in German. There's a need for a Bible to be done in this way so that it can reach this group. And that should be what's driving things. So often there's there's book companies that are trying to do marketing or there's a man who wants to spread his name and so he has a Bible with you know with his notes in it and he, he pushes this and it does this you know and so these things become very popular and you can go, oh this was obviously a good thing. But unless the Holy Spirit's in it, it's not a good thing. And the church actually needs to step back and say, how do we rightly think about the work of the Holy Spirit in the world? And what does that have to do? And what does that intersect with translations?
0: I think we even need to go back further than that in a sense. And that's we have to recognize the only reason that there's need for translation is because of the curse of God. Because if there was no curse of God at the Tower of Babel, then there would be no need for translations. And even when somebody goes, oh, I need a translation because of X, it's really because of the confusion that goes back to man's sin by man wanting to put himself in the place of God. And because of that, we have to recognize that doesn't mean that it's wrong to translate. I'm not arguing that, but we also should recognize it's not like, oh, wow, the more translations, the better, because that ties back, would it be better if, God even had every single person in the, each family had a different language? No, that would have been worse. That would have caused greater confusion. And so the the need for Bible translations is because we are a cursed people.
1: The problem with the curse of the Tower of Babel was man was trying to put himself in the place of God, which is why God cursed him. And with translations, man can do the same thing. Man can try to put himself into the place of God and say, I'm going to do this without without." considering whether God really desires this without considering whether this is actually good for the church just because they see it would benefit some things that I like, which is very different from how God tells us to make decisions.
0: Right It would push my favorite doctrine or my you know my agenda or my name. And so you get a lot of translations for really bad reasons. And but the best translations that have the best motives they're still trying to overcome, overcome a, an effect of sin and we should recognize that. And so when people go oh it's better to have more bibles, well not inherently because inherently it is connected to the curse. Whether it that's not saying every new bible is a curse, but it is connected to a curse that we need it. And we should just recognize that. And we should we should be crying out to God that we don't need more translations. That instead that curse is more that people are able to communicate with each other better, which is why we get so much translation, so many different translations. and as our ability to communicate has been decaying, we get more and more translations.
1: We're probably going to be talking about the curse of the Tower of Babel for a little bit in this first part because I mean, in the end, like you said, translations really translations really hinge on this. and there's a part of it where after the after Christ's death and resurrection, there was some undoing, there was some beginning of undoing of these things by the spread of the gospel and by these things. So we should probably go and read Genesis eleven six 6-7. Mm-hmm. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And so, I mean, I think it's just—I mean, we can't even imagine this, but imagine if every single person on the face of the earth spoke one language, that they could communicate. I mean—
0: Yeah, I think when we think about it, right, I mean, I think the detail of this gets—I think it's pretty detailed, meaning that we can both— use the same language, the same language of English. But still, we have a lot of trouble understanding each other. Right. I don't think it's just that the curse is this, that you just have these people groups with different languages. No, there's nuances in languages that create such great confusion and continue to create great great confusion. And it's, it's, you know, people miscommunicate all the time. And it's just endemic to the human condition. And it all goes back to the Tower of Babel. So are
2: you saying we would be Less curse if we only had one translation.
0: No, I'm saying all translations are dealing are required because of the curse. Without the curse, we would only have one Bible. We would have no translations, right? Yeah, <laughs> because that we'd all speak true. one language. <laughs> but it, I mean, that's the basic point I'm making.
3: <laughs> but even then, I mean, you could say that that the. the, the the Bible we have would be very different if that weren't the case, because the Bible we have is written in multiple languages. You know, right? the 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 original Bible from God is written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and and so the fact that that is the case is a representation of, hey, the world is cursed. People speak many languages, so by the time the Old Testament is closed and the New Testament gets written, the the whole not just the language, but the language family changes. It's a dramatically different language.
0: Well, even pre-Babylon Hebrew versus post-Babylon Hebrew is quite a bit different. And so you could even argue that that's another language almost because the word choices that are made after the Babylonian captivity are quite a bit different than the ones that are made before because they kind of incorporate some Babylonian terms into the Hebrew language. So it's kind of this this morphing and changing thing which is the argument why some people say you need new translations because the English language is not the same English language that was spoken in 1611.
3: I mean I want to go back to Tower of Babel and talk about just a few other things here but one of the reasons I mean it's just it's so primeval and and it so defines what we are as a human race what happened there at the Tower of Babel you know Tower of Babel is really the first major event that happens after the flood God destroys the entire world with a flood. Noah and his children are the only ones left. They repopulate the earth, and then the next thing that happens is a bunch of people get together and say, let us make a name for ourselves, and we'll build a tower up to heaven. And then you get that verse that we read where God, I mean, and God's allowed to be condescending, but God is condescending to them. Let's go down and see what they're up to you know like they're not they're not reaching heaven they're not making a name for themselves but that's what they're trying to do and and so because of that god divides god god divides the people by giving them different languages so so the intention of giving them different languages was in order to scatter them so the whole reason that you have any of your other i mean the whole reason that you have tribes and nations and and racism and any you know any number of other families of sins can go back to oh it's because of of what happened here and so what we talk about with the tower of babel is so much bigger than just talking about language and 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 because of that when you talk about translating the bible into a particular language you're talking about a whole lot more things than just language by itself. You're talking about how you shape a culture. You're talking about how you connect people. You're talking about how one group of people communicates with another group of people that might be very different from them when they translate the Bible. So there's just there's a lot going on around the edges that is not really around the edges. It's really central to it, but that gets covered up if all you think is going on is Let's see if I use this word versus that word.
0: But I think before we you know, go too far, uh, it's worthwhile just making the clear biblical argument as to why it's okay to do a translation. It seems to me the clearest reason that it's okay to do a translation is if you look and you see what Jesus quotes. He frequently quotes a uh, post-translation from Hebrew to Greek that's done like – well i mean he's he's quoting in hebrew and and the people recorded in greek well that's a translation and sometimes he quotes from the septuagint and sometimes he quotes from the hebrew text the same with paul and so what you see is it's pretty clear that they were already using translations and neither the apostles nor christ
1: himself said you can't use translations instead they, use they and,
0: and, and they even did
1: translation right, right. there's and times it, where the, there's times where the phrase they use isn't found directly in either one of those two it's that they they made almost an ad hoc translation at the moment based off of their
0: right because because Jesus could have been speaking in Hebrew and they when they recorded it they always recorded it in Greek
3: and we don't want to insult our our listeners but what is the septuagint again the septuagint
0: is a translation that was done by 70 uh, rabbis I forget, like 180 B.C. or something like that, that in the city of Alexandria for the library there, that they these rabbis got together, you know, by the Roman Empire, they gathered them together so that they would translate the Hebrew text into into Greek. So it's that Greek text that was inexistent before Christ was incarnate.
2: And I think it's worth noting because at, at some point we're going to have some not-so-nice things to say about certain translations. But the the Septuagint is... You know, in terms of accuracy, you know, it, it's worse than a lot of them, if not most of them or all of them. Um, you know, they actually even like I'm in not some sure of them. sure
0: all of them, but I well, agree most of them. <laughs> I
2: didn't say it was. I said it could be. But, but like, what, like in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, some of the genealogies, uh, it seems like they went in and changed a lot of the dates because it said these dates don't make any sense. Let's just change them all to make them make sense. You know, we don't have notes from their translation, but it seems like that's what they did because they're different than the Hebrew text. And that's something that even in really bad translations, they aren't normally doing in English.
0: And it goes back to what Charles said, right, is that it needs to be the work of the Holy Spirit. These were 70 unbelievers that translated it. You wouldn't expect their translation to be very good. And they're trying to do it for Greek masters. So they're trying to do it to appeal to people who are Greek, and the Greeks tend to be a lot more – logical and structured in how they look at things as opposed to the Hebrew tends to be more poetic. So they translate it into a more structured thing. So they go, oh, these dates don't line up, so we'll just fix them and we'll make a match. And that's certainly what it looks like they did. And so when we look at that, even that bad translation, you know, Christ is quoting, Paul's quoting.
2: Right. So, you know, it's important (laughs) to have a good translation because, you know, the the originals are the inspired ones in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, you know, there might be some... Childy in there or something but you know that's what's actually inspired and but but if christ is using a bad translation you know any translation is is better than no translation if you don't speak the original language but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to be get a translation that is the most accurate you know compared to the inspired word that we can
0: yeah you know, when you hear about a new translation like you know The ESV came out and everybody was marketing it, and there was, oh, this is a wonderful Bible, blah, blah, blah. It's, It's important for us to be realistic about it. And what I mean by being realistic about it is Bibles are a big business. I had some statistics that I found from Words Rated. So, about 100 million Bibles are printed a year, about 6 billion are in circulation. There's what, how many people? 7 billion? Something like that in the world. So there's a Bible for, you know, almost one for, per person, but they're not evenly distributed at all. Um, it's about $425 million in annual revenue. But 25% of all the Bibles are sold in the United States, even though we don't make up nearly, you know, we make up, what, one-twentieth of the population. So something like 4% of the population in the world, we buy 25% of the Bibles. But also, like, you look at Zondervan, and Zondervan prints 400 different... Bibles and not, like, different translations, but actually, you know, big ones, small ones, all kinds of ones. And so they're not printing 400 different ones because they're trying to get the Word of God to spread, and I'm not insulting the company. I'm just saying they're a company. (laughs) They're a business. And so they have 400 because there's money in it. And so whenever anybody puts out a new translation, it's triggering a buying spree. I mean, there's not many books that you can do that you can then put out and if you did a decent job, you should make, you should be able to sell at least 10 million copies. You know, this is like a bestseller when anybody puts out a new Bible. That's all popular. It's all marketed. And so it's just important to recognize that we shouldn't discount that, which doesn't mean that everybody did it for bad reasons. But at the same time, you can't discount that there's real
1: advantage to them. The truth of it is, it's not just in the last, it's not just in the last 30 years or 40 years that that's become profitable. I mean, in the early 1900s, there were, there were you know, there were Bible, I mean, Schofield, he, like you were talking about, he produced his, you know, he pushed, he produced a Bible, the Schofield Bible, and did, you know, and he pushed it. He put his notes in it. He put Darby's, you know, he had Darby's notes in there. I mean, there and are, he, there didn't are he didn't have his own translation. Yeah. Right. It
0: was a, and you look at Schofield and, and, I mean, he's clearly a con man. There's plenty of evidence that proves that he's a con man. I mean, that's easy. I mean, he was charged with it. I mean, it's he was charged with bribery as a senator. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Marrying some woman who's still married. I mean, yeah. I mean, married. he's just a really he's just a con man, just a blat, just a, a blatant con man. But what's important to recognize is that the con that he chose to do was to choose a doctrine that wasn't widely held and push it and say that you'll only understand it if you buy his book. And it's a huge money maker, And so Schofield's a good example of somebody who's using the Bible, not because the Holy Spirit's guiding them, he's a con man, but pushing the Bible because you make a lot of money with it.
1: The point of this is, if you're thinking about this, not to go, if someone's doing it, you know they're doing it for a wrong reason. It's to not be naive and know that there are evil men out there and know that, I mean, it's not hard, there could be evil men out there even if there wasn't money in it. Once you put a bunch of money into it, you know what happens. This is just how the world works. You mean a Bible salesman might not be on the
3: up
0: and up?
1: (laughs) Right. If you know anything about salesmen. (laughs) I'm a salesman.
0: So going back to why people do Bible translations or why they argue that they do Bible translations is to make the word more understandable, right? People don't read Greek. They don't read Hebrew. So if you're... You know, If you just had that, you end up with like the Roman Catholic Church where they did everything in Latin, and so nobody could understand anything. They would just sit in there and they would hear the, the priest babble, and then at the end, there's a reason why it's called babble, <laughs> and that at the end that they'd get up and they'd go, okay, we worshiped, even though they worshiped with a complete lack of understanding, which is what it says in First Corinthians 14, that you're not to do that. And so – you know, translations are very useful. And so somebody who looks at a Bible like the, the King James and says the last time this was substantially updated was like in seventeen seventies or something. So we need to update the language. We shouldn't immediately go, That's horrible because languages change.
2: And and the also the other thing is, you know, there's no inspired translation it's perfect. Um, so there always is room for improvement. That doesn't mean that all of the new translations are an improvement. They might be worse than the old one. But, you know, there's you can't say that this is a perfect translation. It, no one can ever do better. Even this even ignoring the fact that language changes. There's not a perfect translation.
1: I mean when you talk about the King James in particular and you should we should mention it just because it's kind of a lightning rod in the when you talk about translations, you know you mentioned earlier. You know the first version was translated in 1611, and there are people who will walk around saying, "I only use the 1611 King James version," and most of them have never seen a 1611 King James version. If you ever go and look back at it, most people today couldn't read it.
2: The other thing is there isn't a King James 1611. There are King James versions that were printed in 1611, but there is no official right. version, right?
1: And but I mean, but and there are people who talk about this as if there as if there is this defined thing as if and then they act like it was inspired by God and anybody who makes any change to it when any version they've ever used in their life has been edited and has been changed since then I went to a church one time where there were several people there who were super strong 1611 you know and we took a 1611 Bible over and showed it to them and they go I don't know what that is that's not the Bible and you're like going look I mean you know and so it's just important to point out I mean they're they're just there are really wrong ideas no matter which way you come from. And you, need to, you actually need to take the time to spend thinking about what's the right way to think about these things.
0: So on the one hand, you have that it needs to be understandable. And the tension on the other hand is that, that there's supposed to be unity in the church. I mean, we're supposed to be edifying. You know, it talks about Ephesians 4 that, we're supposed to, that the purpose of the church is to edify the bodies for the work of the believer so that we're united in one. And translations tend to divide. And they tend to create these divisions so that we're not speaking with the same voice. We're not speaking, you know you know, first Corinthians ten seventeen says, For we though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And if we're one body, it kinda of makes sense that we'd speak with one voice. And so the more you fragment your translations, the less you're speaking with one voice. Now obviously you have different nations that speak different languages, so you always speak with different voices, but there should be that tension that that on that one side that, yes, it's good to have it be more understandable, but on the other side you should be going. But every time we do this, we lose something too.
3: And, I mean, that's at where we are in history right now. And it hasn't always been that case. Like, if you have a country that doesn't have the Bible in their language, it works the opposite almost. Right. I mean, you know, and this this isn't even that old of a thing for those of us of European heritage or something. I mean, look at what happens in Germany and during the Reformation, when Luther translates the Bible into German, realized there was no such thing as the German language when he's translating it. There are hundreds of different regional dialects of German at that time. And what happens is he translates the Bible, the Word of God, into a particular dialect of the language. Well, that becomes the dominant book in every literate household. The number of literate households increases. And so all of a sudden, you get Something that is recognizable as modern German and all those other versions of German disappear because the Bible came in and unified the people, like you said. Right. And that happens all over Europe. Everywhere that the Bible was translated into a language, all of a sudden you saw the languages starting to consolidate. You saw a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And now we're saying, all right, let's kind of move the other direction. Let's, let's take our consolidated languages and let's further fragment them. Now, nobody's actually saying that when they're translating the Bible. Nobody says that's what we're going to do. <laughs> but that is the effect. <laughs> but it is the effect. It is the effect. And and, and that effect works in many different ways. You know, if, if you're, you can do it with translations, but you can also do it with all of your various different study Bibles. If you have a study Bible that's targeted at working women, you know, the Reformed study Bible for working women with three children or more, then, you know, you're not—that study Bible is not really encouraging unity in the body of Christ. Right. It's, it's assuming divisions in the body of Christ and then trying to speak to the divisions without pulling
0: out of that. And when it speaks to the divisions, it, that naturally has the effect to increase the divisions, right? If you're saying you're special because of this, then and you're, I'm going to write to you and talk to you about this, then that's all they focus on. So you create greater divisions in the body of Christ. I mean, you were talking about Germany, and obviously it happens in like all the European countries pretty much. But, you know, I go to Nigeria quite a bit and I can watch it happen in Nigeria, the consolidation of languages, because they're, they're like, you know, Europe was before the reformation where every tribe would have its own language. Every village that you went to would have its own language. there would be all this discrepancy of languages. And you can see that when the gospel comes to Nigeria 110 years ago, or whenever it did to the interior part of Nigeria, that all of a sudden, you know, the people started to worship together, which meant that they had a common language. And you look even now that that the tribal languages are usually only spoken by the grandparents. And the parents might speak Hausa, they might speak the regional language, and almost all the kids speak English. And they speak another language too, but they all speak English. And you can see that in two more generations, you know, 60 years or something, they'll probably all speak English. And that's the effect of, I mean, for the the quote-unquote christian communities there and that's really the effect of the word of god that it is consolidating it continues to consolidate because they don't have and and it consolidates even as they have different translations there and they're using different translations they're common enough translations that it's consolidating the language
1: and i mean i i think and i really want to push on this idea because if you're listening to this don't get hung up on the fact that they're switching to English because if they had if no. there was, if there was a French translation of the Bible, if the
0: House of Translation, which is the language they speak, if the House of Translation was better, it would have been House of, But the House of Translation is terrible, right? And so everybody that reads the House of Translation, they, I mean, somebody that knows what the Bible says, they read sections of the House of Translation. Like I've had translators that have been trying to, you know, as I quote from the the English translation, they'll quote from the Hausa, and they almost always quit because they go, this is such a horrible translation. This isn't saying the same thing, and I don't want to just read the Hausa translation because it's not true. Now, there is an older Hausa translation that's a lot better that was done hundreds of years ago, but the newer but the ones are bad. changed
1: enough that – I mean, is that – because there's dialects and changed, things, right?
0: But – and so it would, be, it would be like the level of
1: the these and nows the that if you're not used to hearing it, it's hard to hear. Okay. But, I mean but if you're if you're listening to this under I mean there is a sense in which we don't have a good understanding of why we have such unity of culture I mean there is a part of it where we're swimming in an ocean that we inherited and we like Jonathan said 500 years ago there I mean you can go look on Wikipedia and what Wikipedia will say is prior to Martin they'll talk about Martin Luther's translation and they'll say there was something called high German but then they'll say there was high german really had no unification it was something where there were Multiple dialect varia- dialectal variations, I mean, to the point that there were tribes that really could barely talk to each other in the same nation that spoke— Oh, there or, were
0: definitely ones that could not speak to you know, each other I mean, at all. And,
1: but they still spoke a version of a Germanic language. <laughs> right. And then Martin Luther does this, and 200 years later, they formalize the language, but really all they do is they just accept what's happened— I mean, right. th- you know, they, I mean, they add some I – mean, but it's not like they have to go through and go, we've got to snap this thing together and really sharpen it up. No, the language has been, has been established. And I think there's a sense where we think this is normal. We think what we have is natural. And there's a – like I said, don't get hung up on what he's saying about it being English. But there's a part of it where – I mean, I remember the first time I heard it, the multicultural version of my brain went, it's horrible that Hausa might die out. And 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 if they want to keep house there's no problem if they really want to keep house it's not like they have to get rid of house but there's a real cost but it's what causes you but it's the the gospel is more powerful than something else that doesn't have it i mean another language that does not have the gospel is not going to last in the way that something that has the gospel is
0: i just i mean i think it's worth making the point that what happens over and over again is that languages are a way to keep a people oppressed. So when you go, oh, we want to keep house around, what that really you're saying without realizing it is we want to maintain a people who are oppressed. Because the reality is when the English came in, the people who got all the trade, got all the business, they were all the rulers, they were all the leaders, they all spoke English. If you didn't speak English, you weren't going to be in that class. It's always creates classes because it divides people, it creates classes, and that creates a group that that's the losers and a group that's the winners. And language does that when you start to divide language. And so, you know, that's, we just need to recognize to think that a language dies out, that's horrible, a language dies out, that means there's greater freedom in the world, there's less oppression. We shouldn't be going, that's horrible, we should be going, that's actually a blessing.
1: And there's a part of it where if, you, if somebody was being Somebody who was secular could look at this and go, any book that was popular would have done that to the language. Not necessarily, because in the end, understand what the Bible is. It talks about justice. It talks about right and wrong. It talks about how to think about loving your neighbor. It ta- like Jonathan was saying, there's all these aspects of culture. The Bible is about establishing a culture that is good it is about telling you what it's is right, a, right. and it's wrong an attractive it's telling culture. you who your relationship your relationship with god your relationship with one another and so it if it was heidi heidi would not transform a nation heidi everybody wouldn't get you know i mean it just you couldn't pick another book war and peace whatever you want to pick that's not going to make the transformation of the nation and i just i mean i just i can't stress strongly enough how easy it is to miss this Because we've gotten—we have grown up and just think that this is what happens in the world, and we don't realize how much the world changed after the Bible began to spread into all these languages.
3: About the only case I can think of where that happened, at least in Europe, was Italy. Because Italy—the Reformation never took hold in Italy like it did or at least tried to in pretty much the entire rest of Europe— and because of that, you never really had an early Italian translation of the Bible, like you had in, you know, even France, where the, the Reformation took hold and then was eradicated by government oppression. They had French translations. There were French expatriates who were translating in other countries, and you know, but but Italy did not have a translation of the Bible into Italian. So so if it, when people trace the history of Italian. And they say, well, what helped consolidate it? A lot of them point back to Dante and the Divine Comedy, and that's about the only case that you can talk about that. And, th- and the only reason that happened is because they didn't have the Bible. They were still oppressed by the Catholic Church that's speaking to them in Latin. Now it's related to Italian, but it's not Italian. It's not the common
1: speech. And Italy actually has a higher degree of like regional variation, even exactly. in their language to this because day, than a lot of other countries
3: do. Because Dante and the Divine Comedy is not the same thing as the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: It doesn't create a unity of culture. And you need to actually unify the language. It, you need a unity of culture, yeah, too.
3: It, it creates an approximation of it, but not actually it.
0: As we think about how much the, the world was transformed to create the modern world, I mean, it is important to recognize that, that Bible translations, people are still using them to transform the world. When the NIV was originally translated, they wanted to do it gender neutral, and the language, the English language, was not gender neutral. There's new Bible translations that are trying to change the language. We shouldn't think that they're just conforming to an existing language. When they even came out with the NIV, and they argued about it because it was being boycotted, and it's a big money maker. And so it's being boycotted because they say they're going to do gender-neutral language, so they swore they would never do it. They broke their oath because they have now done one. But we should recognize this isn't some neutral thing. This is them trying to transform the culture because they know they can do it through the word of god and you're
3: not saying that transforming the culture and attempt to transform the culture is bad it's you're saying it can be good or bad you're saying it's a necessary part of doing a bible that you expect to have some sort of wide circulation
0: and i'm actually saying more i'm saying that they that some of these people that are pushing so hard for the gender neutral translations they're doing it to change the culture because they know it changes culture I don't think they're that naive to not understand. that They're just going, we're going along because they're not going along because that's not how most people use language. But they know that if they change the Bible, that they can change the culture. They change it in a bad way because God is not gender neutral, but yet they can change it because the Word of God, widely adopted, will change cultures.
2: The issue is also more than just gender neutral translations uh, because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the newer translations – are more gender neutral than the Hebrew and then something like the King James, and I mean, and that might be something that's less of a, you know, a, a you know, a motivation where they're going out to try to, you know, change culture and more of conforming to criticism of, you know, how can you how can you say men when you mean, um, you know. You know, from the, you know, whether it's secular or liberals, you know, criticizing, saying, how can you be using these archaic things? Or, you know, how can you be using the phrase old wives tales? You know, isn't that isn't that, you know, just offensive to old wives? So, I mean, you can look at charts of how many, you know, male references do uh, translations have. And, you know, King James and it just goes down from there to that, you know, stuff like ESV has substantially less than the King James did. And that's all stuff that has been stripped out that was in the Hebrew. I mean, the Hebrew and Greek have even more because, I mean, th- you know, most of their words have, you know, uh, a, uh, a a gender to them, which, you know, doesn't – isn't the same thing as, you know, the way that gender works in English. But, you know, it's all, <coughs> it's all being reduced from what the originals have.
0: And, I mean, we look at, like, the pronoun stuff that's going on now where everybody should name their own pronouns. I just remember, you know, 30 years ago. 32, 33 years ago, looking at at booklets in Sunday school and going, and I remember, for whatever reason, I remember it was a, a Sunday school thing by John Stott, who's pretty well known. And they required it to be switching back and forth between he and she. That in the Sunday school books, they were doing this way before they did it in the Bible. They perverted pronouns right because he in english historically has meant either male or female if it's unknown if it's a woman you say she if it's an unknown gender you say he or if it's male you say he that's that's english
2: and it's not traditionally in english it's from genesis where god (laughs) names adam i mean it's man is adam and that's mankind i mean it's from genesis are there languages out there that
0: don't do that i don't know but that's I, there def- are ones that only have that have gendered pronouns. But, but it's definitely the way it, it was intended. But And it is the more typical way in all languages. The most typical is that, that if you don't know or if it's a man, it's he. And if you do know that it's a woman, then it's she. And so the he is the default that you only change if you're speaking about a woman in particular.
2: It's the male collective, right?
0: Yeah, the male collective. And so – You know, the modern translations say, oh, well, that's just, we're just changing this because this is the way the culture is going. But they're actually driving it. And they were driving it before they messed with the Bible. They actually forced people to change how they wrote. I think John MacArthur was really the only one that had sufficient power that he said, I'm not changing my books. And he didn't change his books. But all the other ones, John Stott, you know, other people, they pretty much all just caved in because that was the only way the publisher, well known publishers, would publish.
1: And you're basically saying in the writing that the one sentence would be – if it was new, it would say he and the next sentence would – I mean they would, would say she, yeah. They would just the, just, because just they like were, they do now and like AP style says that you're supposed to do that. When God confounded the languages, he changed the way thoughts were structured. He changes the way that you would approach thinking about something. and But there are things that override culture. And this is the thing where, like you're saying in Scripture, God said – when he referred to man to man collectively, he referred to man as man. So, right. and he and and you see in the New Testament where Paul says the head of every woman is her husband. You know, what I mean, the head it of every is woman men. is a man, right? And he and so Paul. I mean, Paul is basically hearkening back to Genesis, going, "This is not just some idea. This wasn't a this wasn't a structure of Hebrew that's this piece that we can take or leave." He's saying it was telling us something about the world. And this is why the gospel actually transforms a culture, is because it's not a set of ideas that you get to think about however you want to. It's actually a set of ideas that must be thought about in a certain way that tell you how to think about these things, and that you have to figure out how to... change the way you think so that you're able to deal with those things. And so some languages bring, I mean, there were languages that you translate into where they have pagan ideas that you have to change to bring the Bible into them. You have to change things so that you can show them who God is because you don't just go, we'll just reflect God to them in the way they want to think about God because God must be thought about in a certain way.
3: I remember having a conversation with a a guy who was talking about the, the, process of translating the Bible into languages for a particular Southeast Asian tribe that did not have any concept of sheep. They had no sheep, never experienced a sheep, don't know what sheep are. It's a little bit of a problem when you come to the Bible and you have words like the Lamb of God. What do you do? One of the options is, well, you just replace lamb with the, their equivalent, and you, you know, hey, Jesus is the piglet of God. 'Cause they understood what piglets are. You know, that's that's but but no, I mean so so the option is either you conform your translation to the world or you have to say, Hey, there are ideas here in the original language that are expressing the character of God, that God has intended he communicated in a particular way and, and instead of conforming my translation to what everybody's familiar with, I have to translate it in a way that is going to transform the culture not the other way around
2: and it can be made to sound like this is like a modern phenomenon as we're going to these exotic places but you know there weren't camels running around england in 1611 now camel is not as core to you know the message of the gospel as you know the pictures of lamb but it's something that they had to face as well and they didn't translate camel as horse
3: So, I mean, when you talk about something like that, one of my favorite examples is from um, William Tyndale, one of the early translators. And the majority of... <laughs> <laughs>
1: I like translators. So, translators, <laughs> Yeah.
3: When, one of the early translators of the Bible was uh, William Tyndale. And he's trying to translate from Hebrew into English. And he realizes there's this Hebrew concept that English has got no equivalent for. And, and it, but he realizes it's so central to the communication of what the Bible is trying to say that, that instead of conforming to what's around, he's like, hey, I have to make up a new word. And so that's where we get the idea of atonement from, is that th- this was a word that did not exist in English prior to translation of the Bible into English. But Tyndale says, "Hey, this is an idea that is representing how God is becoming one with man. It's It's being at one, It's restoring a lost relationship. And I've got to make a word for it. So here it is. and and now, I mean, even outside the church, that word is so important. It's so Mm -hmm. meaningful.
1: Everybody kind of has an idea of what it means to atone for something. Just because this sounds like an email forward, don't go and believe all the other email forwards out there. Right.
3: (laughs) Just because it sounds like a bad, you know, from sermonillustration.com. This is true. This one's actually (laughs) real.
0: And you always have that that tension, right? Because do you make it understandable or do you because the reason you're translating in the first place is to make it more understandable, but how far can you go? And it seems to me that, you know, I remember Wycliffe probably 15 years ago now. I mean, they they got into a pretty big scandal because somebody, I, I know the guy, took, they had translated it into Turkish, and he translated it back and sent it to World Magazine and said, you know, this is what Wycliffe is putting out in Turkey. And people read it and went, this isn't the Bible, because Wycliffe had gotten to the point where they were, they were trying to make it so understandable that they didn't care if it matched what the word said. They just, you know, and you hear about this, like the bread of life becoming the rice of life. I'm sorry, that has huge implications. We're one loaf. No, we're each, each individual grains if you're the rice of life. And, and they do these things. So we just need to recognize that, that the idea is to transform the culture by the word, not to transform the word by the culture.
1: Right. The piglet of God has real problems when you start explaining clean and unclean animals and why these means things you are
0: It means you have to start to come up with different rules for what's clean and unclean. It, the Bible, truth holds together only one way. As soon as you do error, you have to build all these Rube Goldberg machines to keep it to hold together because it won't hold together otherwise. You know, as we talk about these things, one of the things that we should also recognize just, you know, going back to Genesis 11 where he says that I'll confound their language it's so they cannot work one of the things that happens as we have all these new translations is it reduces the ability for the church to work because when you speak different languages when you're saying different things when it gives you different understanding which drives a different culture it weakens the ability of the church to change the culture and so it's a real danger because you end up not being able to speak to one another okay so a lot of people would,
2: would disagree with that they'd say well actually it makes me be able to do a lot more work because I don't know Greek and Hebrew, but if I read six different translations and I get a better idea of what the Hebrew and Greek actually meant.
0: You hear that argument and on its face. It just strikes me as so ridiculous because what you're saying is hearing more error will correct my errors because if they're all translating it differently, there's ones that are expressing what's there and ones that are further from expressing what's there. There's expression that's continuous and and integrated with the other things that are said. And then there's ones. So when, you know, I remember reading Rick Warren's book, 40 Days of Purpose, where he intentionally did this. He would like use 15 different translations in it. He would intentionally change the translations all the time. And what that meant is all you were hearing was Rick Warren because it definitely wasn't the Bible because what he was doing was taking a translation that said what he wanted it to say and he could care less what the Bible said literally, because he would use verses that were about making an argument that the verse actually said something completely different. He would find a bad translation that translated into something that made his point. And so when you read it, you're not seeing a reflection of what the Greek and Hebrew says. You're reading a reflection of what people say, what people think. And so you're much more reliable to use scripture to interpret scripture so that you you connect it with other verses instead of saying, well, I'm going to read six different translations. that all had different translation methodologies that, that don't integrate with one another. But
2: can't you do that not in a bad way, in a deceptive way? Like, there's like like in, especially in the Old Testament, there's a lot of passages where the meaning of the Hebrew does not really communicate. It's, it's quite hard to understand in English. So you can have different translators, and they can, like... You know, because c- they're also the Hebrew. You have a couple words turning into a sentence, which, so, so, so the, to take those couple words, there's no way to communicate that idea in English. So you could take it in several directions that both could be true or could be partly true, but are not clear. There's not a one to one translation, and so if, if for things like that, if you're only reading one translation, then you, I mean, you See, for some of those cases, that. you're missing out on you know the breadth of the meaning.
0: And so I think there's a couple issues there. One is that, that now we have tools that that doesn't really help. And since there's been such a proliferation of translations, the tools that are available online. You can look at the Hebrew. You can look at the Greek. You can do the word study yourself. And that's going to be more reliable than picking up six different translations that all say that says something different. Because the reason they say that what it says is it's tying into their translation. It's tying into the, un, their understanding of Scripture with the rest. So to think that they chose those words and that's really reflecting better the Greek and Hebrew, no, that's reflecting more of their theology. And so if you want to know the Greek and Hebrew, go to the Greek and Hebrew. There's good tools out there. There's easy to use now. And so while that argument would have been carried a lot more weight 50 years ago, it just seems to me it doesn't carry much weight now.
2: I mean, and I and I'm not saying that you should do this with like every verse, but I you know I mean there are some where, I mean, especially <laughs> especially in the Hebrew, and and, then, and there's other verses where like I forget the example, but there's an there like there's a you know at least one if not more verses where the King James translators seem to have not understood the verse at all, so they just got it they just got it wrong, and like the sentence doesn't make sense.
0: Like, so there's a lot right. So let, let me. See if I can say something because I don't think we're actually disagreeing. But I think that, that the problem is is if you just read six translations and then go, okay, I'm going to get some general meaning by reading that, that doesn't actually work. But there are times, certainly I've done this when I preach, where I'll look and I'll go, the New King James or the King James did not translate this right, I don't believe, based on the Greek, based on the Hebrew. And then I'll go, hey, but the NASB, I think that was a better translation. So I'll quote from other translations Because I go, based on looking at what the Greek and Hebrew says, or Hebrew says, this is what I think the verse means, tying it in with the rest of theology. But I think that the idea that you can just take that verse without reading what the rest of it does, I mean, translation's a lot harder. And just to think that you can read six versions of a verse and actually get more knowledge about the underlying language, I just don't think that's true.
2: And what a lot of people end up doing is they read six versions of the verse, or... Maybe they have to go to, like, 25 versions of the verse and say, oh, okay, I found a very obscure translation that says what I wish the verse meant. So I'm to that's what it really means. And you can do the same thing with uh, you know, the, le- the Greek lexicon is find some obscure meaning and say this is what it means, but it doesn't make it true.
1: I don't think it's so much that you read 25 translations and just find one that you want. But, I mean, what you said earlier actually really resonated with me because I've done that before where I'll read six different translations. And there's a part of it where I've realized what I'm doing is I find one that just kind of I stop having to struggle with the word. With I stop having right. to, and it's like when you were saying that you should actually try to translate scripture with scripture. Even if there's a problem in this translation, there's a part of it where the way you find that out is you is it it this doesn't match what other places in scripture mean that have been translated. And you st- so you either go this is a bad <laughs> translation in general because it it's never consistent, or you find an area where it's inconsistent, and then like you said, now you're dealing with a particular verse. Because what happens is, is I'll read five different ones, and I, then I'll just kind of – I'll just relax and go, I'm just going to take this one. That works for me. But the issue is, is I, didn't actually re- I didn't actually wrestle with the word. What I did is I just wanted to remove the tension. I just wanted to – you know what I mean? I just right. – I wanted the, the, the difficulty to be over with.
0: And like when we talked about the Septuagint being a bad translation, you don't need another translation to see that the Septuagint's a bad translation. It is internally inconsistent you can tell it's a bad translation because you add up the number of years of so the kings here and you add them up here and they don't work out they just don't reconcile with one another now you need to know the word pretty well to understand that why they're wrong but you can tell you don't need another translation to prove it it's internally inconsistent
2: and i you know i think what could be better than reading six translations is usually you know getting one getting an app or a program that or even a you know, concordance or whatever, but something that lets you actually look where the word you're interested in is used in Scripture, and then you're using Scripture, you know, the, the breadth of meaning of the, the way Scripture uses the word rather than all the things the translators
1: can And look. consistent with what's – and internally consistent to some degree as well, if they've been consistent in their – I mean – Right.
0: Or you can say – I mean, like with – King James is the one that has the best strong numbers usually, and so you can just click on a strongest number and see exactly how it was translated, and you can go, wow, this one's really an odd one out. That one's probably not right. Or I should really try to figure out why they said, here it means something so different. I think even when I preached a sermon just in the last few weeks, I found that case where in one place they just translated
1: like differently than they did any place else. I mean, and one of the things you talked about earlier with, with the gender-neutral stuff is that a lot of people are pushing ideas. But there is a part of it where we ha- because we've been chasing these false ideas, our language has gotten kind of dumbed down in a sense. And so the reason why you have to say he or she to people is because there are people who have – they no longer have the idea that he can represent both men and women. And so there's this question that you get is, you know, is do you chase the culture – or do you raise the culture up and and there's a part of it where i mean this is this is one of the questions that that people have to do and and it's very clear that there are translations that are very very clearly chasing after the dumbing down of culture they they look and they go the culture has been dumbed down well there's nothing to be done about it so let's just let's just go ahead and embrace that and let's let's just pursue the lowest common denominator and i'm not saying there's never a place for that but i'm not sure if it's really at the translation level is where it should be done
2: Though I mean, a translation is dumbing it down and eliminating meaning to, to match culture. Uh, which, you know, not that I'm not the translation, but it's, it is a balance because the translation itself is inherently d- dumbing it down.
0: Is it dumbing it down, or is it saying that to learn the language to the point where you could get the same information out of it, you'd have to spend all your time studying Hebrew before you could understand it? And that's not what we should be. So, is it dumbing down by translating to a different language? It is changing it, but I don't know that it's. I'm not sure "dumbing down" is a fair term for for a translation because it is unquestionably changing it, and there is some nuance of meaning that. But you could write it in more sophisticated words.
2: What I mean by dumbing down in, is you have less inspired meaning in the translation. Sure. And so if now you, that I agree, if you want to, if you're getting rid of, you know. Uh, the male collective, you're also eliminating um, you know, inspired meaning. And now, now, I'm not saying that it's the same thing, but it is either, you, know, you can look at it as a scale, and there's a point where you've, you're, way, you're too far, and there's a point where you have to do it.
0: Right. So here's why I, I pushed back against the idea of dumbing down, is because throughout the history of the world, or throughout post-Reformation is probably the safer place to put it, is that when people translated the Bible— the people we got became more intelligent it did not dumb down the reader it lifted up the reader it made him become more educated more literate more understanding more sophisticated in their reasoning it wasn't about dumbing so you could argue i understand your point you're arguing that the text was dumbed down but my point more is the purpose of a bible is it to edify is it to build up or is it to dumb down the reader And I think that what we're doing now in some of the new translations is dumbing down the reader, not the text, but the reader.
2: Though, though, to be fair, most Americans probably – it's been a very long time if they've ever read a 1,000-page book, even at the NIV level. So (laughs) getting them to read the Bible would (laughs) be elevating them.
1: It is a legitimate argument to say when you're dealing with a group, when you're dealing with someone, how do I communicate with this group? but if the only thing you say is, is well this is what they know and so i'm just going to have to go it doesn't matter what i have to do to explain it to them that's not that's not true that's not safe there is a point where they have to actually they have to actually reach for the truth they have to actually want to understand the truth and you can you can lose the truth by trying to approach someone when you just say i'm going to do whatever it takes to figure out how to tell them, that, you know I mean?
0: Right. I mean, that's basically Roman Catholicism, right? I mean, you can tie to one of two points in Roman Catholicism, either when Gregory becomes the first pope and says, I'm going to consolidate power. But I don't think that's modern Catholicism, as Roman Catholicism, as much as it is when they chose to say that it is proper and good to teach people with images. So it switched from being a word-based religion to an image-based religion. And that's just doing the dumbing down to the extreme. You're going, they don't need to read, just look at a picture. We teach with pictures because everybody can understand a picture. Well, that's not how it's supposed to work. The Word of God is supposed to edify. Ephesians 4, you edify the believers for the work of the ministry. You're supposed to build them up. And so the answer is when you have that that new Christian that that has never read a book in their life or they haven't read a book since they left school, you don't dumb down the Bible— you have to raise up the person, which takes real labor. Right, It takes real work. Right, When I go to Nigeria and I preach and all these people go, but 80% of my congregation's illiterate. My answer is start teaching how people how to read. It's not that hard. They can learn how to read. They want to pretend like they can't, but it's just not true. Yeah. They just don't want to. And what you need to do is go – so do we, does that mean that everything has to be recorded because they can't read or do you teach them to read? Which one's a greater blessing to them? Which one will transform their culture more? Which one will actually have an impact on their lives more? We need to stop pretending like the Bible's not supposed to have an impact on people's lives and that it's not supposed to be work. It is. David meditated on it day and night. So when we're talking about dumbing down you know, the Christian book, that sells a lot of Bibles, they have on their website, they have a list of different translations and what the projected, you know, age, or not age group, but grade level is for the, the different translations. And you can see that there's a pretty broad range. I mean, they put KJV at 12. I've seen it at 13, you know. But when you get down to, like, the New Living Translation, it's six. When you get down to the Message, it's fourth grade level. You know, the NCV, third grade level. Yeah, you know, and so there's a big difference between writing to people that, you know, the NIV level of seven, you know, there's a big difference between writing that and writing it something at level 12. Now this one has, NKJV is seven. I've seen other ones that have it at 10th, but so it's somewhat arbitrary in the, the thing, but you are really saying, what level do you want people to stagnate at? Because that, if the, You know, Christians, the book that they read the most is the Bible, if they're true Christians. And so whatever level, they're going to kind of stagnate at that level. So I don't trust these because I've read the NIV. I've read the New King James. New King James is definitely at a higher level than NIV, and they're saying it's the opposite. That's just blatantly false. And I do think that one of the things that happens is that as you dumb down the Word and write it at a lower level, that what you end up doing is teaching people are failing to teach people how to think, because language really does have to do with the ability to think right the The more language you have, the more vocabulary you have, the more complex thoughts you can you can think because you have more tools to be able to think them, and so in something like second Timothy four two through four, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The point of preaching is to raise the people up. And if you're doing a more simple translation and a translation that doesn't bring forward complex ideas very well, you can't actually you know, lift them up. But it's because that's what the people want. They don't want sound doctrine. They don't want deeper ideas. They want more shallow theology. And so they want easier translations. We shouldn't think that those two don't match, right? I mean, the reason that it's a big money business, the reason that they're writing simpler translations is because they can sell them. But I think we should also look at 2 Timothy 4 and go, there's a reason why the Bible says they can sell them. People don't want sound doctrine. They want easier things. They want easier concepts. The NIV... Writes a lot more simply than the KJV or the NKJV.
1: Reminds you of the part where Peter is talking about, you know, (laughs) Paul. As Paul says, there are some things that are difficult to understand. You know what I mean? Where, I mean, you see Peter referencing the fact that even as an apostle, he recognizes that there are things that are more complex, and there's not really a fundamental way to escape that. There's the only way to escape it is to ignore those parts of the Bible, and and that's exactly what this verse is talking about.
0: I think most people can look around and they can see that there's real problems in the church. The church in America is very weak, very weak. It has almost no influence or very limited influence on the culture. It, it gets drug whichever way the culture goes, the church follows, right? The gender neutral stuff, it's the same example. The homosexuality, the same example. The society is dragging the church around. We're the, the tail that's being wagged by the dog rather than being the dog that's wagging the tail of the culture around us, which is how God designed the church to be. And it really comes down that we don't want doctrine. And I think that Bible translations and the, the continued simplification, like the message is incredibly popular, the New Living Translation, these things that are, that are really bad translations, that they're very popular because people don't want doctrine. And without doctrine, the church loses its strength.
3: For example, Paul says in Titus 2, verses 6 to 8, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. I mean, Paul's really exhorting Titus, and and by extension, Titus to exhort the young men to strength. And the way to strength is, hey, it's, it's through good works and doctrine, um, and if, if doctrine is not central to the church, then—if if, doctrine is not central to your translation philosophy, you're going to get a weak church.
0: And you're going to be the—instead the, you know, the, of the opponent being ashamed, the church is going to be ashamed. So And I think largely in the United States, the tr- church walks around very ashamed. And, it's and, ashamed of oh yeah homosexuality is wrong but I'm I'm sorry I have to say that
3: and the the fundamental point that the church is ashamed of is the church is ashamed of the word of God yes which Paul elsewhere says don't be ashamed of the word of God right
0: don't be ashamed of the gospel
1: I mean it's important also we're talking about doctrine I mean the Bible isn't by itself doctrine you know I mean there's this part right. where you read the Bible and from the Bible you say this is what these things mean. Like you said, scripture interprets scripture. You read 10 different verses and you go, what is the what is God telling us about himself? There could be four different, you know, you can look at different churches and there are churches who will go out and say they have a Bible, they look at the Bible and they say homosexuality is acceptable because in the end they take and they, they pull this false doctrine out of scripture. And we shouldn't think that translation isn't related to doctrine though because there's a part of it where you can make decisions in your translation like we're talking about with the, with, with the gender thing. With, I mean, th- there's all these different decisions you can make as you go through Scripture that strongly influence doctrine. If you said that Jesus is the swine, you know, the piglet of God, that's going to impact doctrine at some point. You're either going to have to do a, No matter what, it's going to impact doctrine. <laughs> you can't do enough fixing to fix that. And so there's just this part of it where... People, I mean, they need to understand that doctrine and the Bible are not the same thing, but they're close. They're very closely related.
0: It would be like mathematics and science, which isn't a perfect analogy, but I think it's a pretty decent analogy. The reality is if all you know is A plus B, you know, or 1 plus 1 equals 2, you know, just plus and minus, you can only get so far in being able to understand the world. Right. You can only get so far in being able to reason off of that. And then you look, if you understand calculus and differential equations and, right, I mean, all of a sudden your ability to understand the world completely transforms. And so the Bible is like these tool kit, but if you don't use the tools, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I had plenty of classes in Diffie Q, but I don't remember any of it because I never used it, so it doesn't do it. But the point is, is that the Bible, you can still leave it on the shelf and not use it. But having a Bible that's a better translation, it gives you the tool so that you can build doctrine if you want to. But without that, if you've dumbed it down, if you're reading the message and reading what Eugene Peterson's view of God is, all you can end up with is what Eugene Peterson thinks, because it has nothing to do with the Word of God or very limited. And so, you know, it's the toolkit that you're picking up that you use to build the doctrine, like math is to science. And what we're seeing right now is a very weak church a church that people don't really understand basic doctrines. I mean, you read Hebrews 6 where it says, you know, repentance from dead works and faith in the li- in, in God and baptism and the laying on of hands and eternal life and the eternal judgment. And it goes, that's all you want to talk about. Well, most churches now don't even talk
1: about that. And the Not trans- all, they only talk about, it, like, one or two of those. Right.
0: They don't talk about all of it. They just talk about parts of it. You know, they like to talk about salvation by faith alone, but then they stop there. They don't really say what it means. And so the church is really weak, and, you know, it, we're, we're in the state, like Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, for everyone who partakes only of the milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. When you read something like the NIV— it waters down most things that would be offensive because it's trying to sell books. And so, but it's, it's understanding what it says that is actually what changes you. And so what we end up with is babies that all they get is milk all the time because if the word of God is milk, then how do they get, how do they get strong food when they, the, way, the things they can build with the toolkit they've received is just milky things?
1: If you don't understand that Jesus Christ is an offense, right? I mean, Jesus Christ is that stone that you either stumble over or not, then that changes your view of translations. It changes if the point of translating is to remove that offense. Then the point of the translation is to remove Jesus Christ, to remove the knowledge of Jesus Christ from the translation, and that's a very dangerous thing.
0: Opposed to you, look at the other side, which would be like Psalm One. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bring forth its fruit in its season. Whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Yeah, you know, you'll prosper. You're strong. You bring forth fruit in its season. You're like a tree planted by Rivers of water, and it's by meditating on His law night and day. But if you've dumbed it down so that it it doesn't have any of the offense, it doesn't have any of the strength of the words, it doesn't. It's not bringing forth enough of the original meaning. It doesn't matter if you meditate on that; it doesn't have any power, or it has limited power. I shouldn't say none because like it is a translation. The but the it's Septuagint like
1: was, was still used. right.
0: And if you read something that's written for four year olds, yeah, will it have power? Sure, you can read books that. You can read missionary books that are written to four-year-olds, and you can learn something about missionaries, but you won't really understand much about a missionary. I mean, the other thing that you have to watch for in translations is that that some translations are put out there very much to push uh, theology, like Darby and dispensationalism. I mean, he wrote his own Bible, and I would put the term wrote his own Bible, because he was trying to put push forth his, his theology. And so he was doing eisegesis into the, the Scripture. He was taking his view and translating the Scripture so that it supported his view. And so you have to recognize that because of the confusion of language, that the translator's theology can never be absent from their translation because they're stuck with the point because there isn't a direct parallel. You can't say this Hebrew word means this English word. Instead, you say this these three Hebrew words mean these 12 English words. And there's a lot of flex and a lot of going, okay, so what were they saying, if you know both languages well? And that's always going to be tainted by your understanding of who God is. And so some people do that deliberately to push people to an understanding. But all translations end up being affected by the by the theology of the translator. It's impossible for them not to, going back to Genesis 11 and the confusion from the Tower of Babel. It's just literally impossible for them not to be affected by the theology of the translator. And when you think about that, I mean, the theology, a lot of the people that trans—some of the people that translated the King James, their theology was good, but a lot of them weren't. It's not like they all had great theology. They were Anglicans that were very much, you know, wanted to, to win King James, who was a pervert and a tyrant. They wanted to win his favor, and they would translate things based on it, like calling it the Book of James, because it was a Latin term for Jacob. I mean, we know that they did this. So when you, if you ever want to say that the KJV is inspired, you got a problem. But you have a problem if you say the NASB because it's got James too, and it yeah, they all have James, even though the word's really Jacob.
2: Either King James or one of his, you know, secretaries or something sent like two dozen changes, which it has I don't think we know what those changes were. But he said, here's changes you have to make because I don't agree with these things. So you know, even apart from the yeah you know, and the, tra- tra- the theology of the translators he actually he himself made changes to it
0: he was trained by a, ref- a he was trained by a, a renowned reformed scholar so some of his changes he was still constrained you know chain up a child in the way he will go and he will not wander that far from it so there were th- things that constrained him in terms of that but still he's yeah correcting all these noted scholars but most of those were Anglicans that were very much looking towards a trying to recreate the bishops and and everything else or, and to have the same power as the Roman Catholic Church did. So it's not you know the good news is is that the the word of god because you can compare it against it, itself that there are constraints to it. But at the same time you know the theology of the translators affects it.
3: When you say the theology of the translator affects the translation, you're basically just saying that human bias is a factor in translation. Absolutely. Human bias is a factor. When you say that and you recognize, it, with like with any endeavor where human bias is a factor, then if you recognize that, you can take steps to suppress that bias. I mean, you can you can say, hey, there's a variety of translation tools I could use. There's a variety of translation paths I could follow. And some of them are going to enable my biases, and other ones are going to suppress them. You can't but, eliminate them, but there are ways that those, you know, bias is just another word for human frailty or sin. you know sin yeah exactly <laughs> right. so so anything that constrains sin is better and and you know we want our sin constrained by our bible translators
0: right and you know some like the message and stuff when you start talking about that you look at their translation philosophy and it's basically eugene peterson said i'm going to paraphrase it i'm going to read it and then i'm going to say what i think it says which is like a paraphrase the new living Translation, although they tried to change it more into a translation at first it was the new living bible and that was a pure paraphrase now they've tried to make it a little bit more of a translation but like the message it's just him saying my sin doesn't need to be constrained i'm just going to tell you what i think the verse means because that's all that matters and that's a horrible trans quote unquote translation philosophy but a lot of people read the message thinking that it's the bible and it's not it's eugene peterson's view of what the bible should say
3: if he if he were calling it a commentary, we wouldn't be as as right. as heavy on it. I mean, there would be theological problems with it, but but we wouldn't
0: be coming down We'd as be hard on it it. a bad commentary. It it not <laughs> a bad yeah, and bad commentaries. You know, there's there's the, there's good things and bad commentaries. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know. A bad yeah.
3: commentary can be useful, more useful than a bad translation. Right, a bad translation it, it pretends is, to be the word of you're God. You're putting
0: your word into God's mouth, and he even said that. I don't remember what the exact marketing was. I tried to look for it this afternoon, but something like "this is the Bible that God would write if he wrote it today." That was like their blurb when they were originally marketing it. Well, that he's literally saying, "I'm smarter than God, and my word should be in God's mouth," and that's what you're really doing with a paraphrase. Is you're saying when you say this is a paraphrase of the Bible, you're saying, I can speak it better than God can. That's a really dangerous position to have.
2: If you want to know how helpful it is, you know, how many paraphrases are there of like ancient, you know, other other ancient books? Are there, you know, there, there might be out there, but people aren't normally reading paraphrases of Plato and saying, this is Plato. You know, this is a translation of Plato, but actually it's just a paraphrase and somebody rewrote it. Because they recognize if we want to understand what Plato is saying, we should read something where the translator is saying, let me try to communicate this in the clearest way possible in English, you know, using the words that he used and not just rewrite it.
0: And, I mean, you kind of, to give the the example from the opposite side, you look at how people do the Constitution now. They paraphrase it all the time to pass laws, and they say that the, – and look at how much damage it's done to our country that they paraphrase it rather than taking it as written, so much so that there was a whole law movement in the, the philosophy of law that says that you have to go back to what the original writers thought because everybody was just saying we can – that's where Roe versus Wade came from. So you can't turn around and go, oh, this is good for Bibles, but for the Constitution it caused babies to be killed. No, they both had the same philosophy. That philosophy is very damaging.
3: And the the arrow of entropy there, we, we should be really clear. It started in the church, with the church Absolutely. treating the Bible as something less serious than they should have. And because of how we interpret the Bible, then the culture looks and says, okay, that's how we will interpret other important documents. When you talk about the ways that a translation philosophy constrains sin, and paraphrases the loosest one of those, you know, well, I mean— Another one up would be what we would call, say, dynamic equivalence, where it takes the, the individual phrases, not necessarily da- all the way down to the words, but the individual phrases, the individual idioms, where it tries to translate those individual phrases into target phrases or target idioms in the language it's moving to.
1: So instead of being word-based, it's, it's, they're, they're translating larger sections at a time. Thought by thought. Right. Ideas, concepts.
3: Yeah, and this this would be, say, where the NIV
0: falls, and they're
3: very, you know, self-consciously falls.
0: Right, and they're, they're kind of saying that the Bible's too complicated, so we have to predigest it for you, is essentially the the philosophy, the, the translation philosophy, is that it's too hard for people to understand. So we're not going to give them the words, we're going to predigest it so that they make sure that they get the right idea. Not as far as they did with paraphrase, but... I'll, yeah, a lot less than with formal equivalents. But the dynamic equivalence, again, it it puts all this onus on the translator to get his theology right because it's more constrained and it's easier to see the inconsistencies than it is where a guy's writing a story, which is basically what, you know, a paraphrase is. They're just writing their own story. But yet, and so if they're doing it phrase by phrase, the phrase in Scripture, you know, you're kind of constrained because you can only go so far off and to say this, as opposed to if you do it at a paragraph level, you can change it a lot more.
1: When you're thinking about the translation philosophy constraining your sin, I mean, when you think about what translation is, the point of translation is is that you try to convey as closely as you can what God said. And so there's important when you look at those things, I mean, you have a lot more freedom to do things when you're dealing with things at the phrase level. You have a lot more, you know, when you're dealing with an idea. And I mean, we've, you've done this before. Wherever, when somebody asks, how did your conversation with so-and-so go? You know, when I talk to you at work, I try to tell you exactly as I can what happened in the conversation. If I go outside and a friend asks me how my conversation went, I have a lot more freedom. The, the cost of me translating something incorrectly, the cost of me, if him having the wrong idea, there's really he's not going to act on the information I give him. And so there's this part of it where I can just give him the gist of each one of those things. But it is – I mean this is really what's kind of central to it is how, do, is how do you actually arrive at as close as you can to what God exactly said. And, like, and so when you look at these different styles that we're talking about, obviously paraphrase, incredibly loose. And then when you look at dynamic equivalence, you still have a lot more room in there. You move from dynamic equivalence, you get to formal equivalence, and this is where you're dealing with word by word. You're dealing with the literal meaning of each word and how they're put together, and you're trying to get as close to that structure to the even to the way that the thought was structured in the original language. You're trying to bring that over as close as you can at the word level.
0: I would argue strongly for formal equivalence, and the reason is is because it's a word by word. It's as close as you can get to a word by word translation. And the fact that Jesus Christ is the logos of God, rather than because there's like you know paragraph that's a transliteration of a Greek word too, I mean it's like words written together is what that means, and so you know God is expressing himself as the word, and so it's really dangerous if he's expressing himself as the word, the Greek word that's used for word, and it's also used for logic and for idea, so it it has some breadth breadth wider than that, but yet it really is more at that granularity. And so if that's what he's calling it, he doesn't call it the book, he calls it the word. If he's calling it that granularity, it seems like that's the right granularity to translate, as close as you can. I mean, there's a couple different
3: axes that you can look at when you're looking at the acceptability of a translation, and one of them is translation philosophy. But then another one that's particularly relevant to Bible translations is, well, literally, what are you translating from? You know, what is the source text that you have? And and hey, honestly, there's in in our modern age, there's options. You can pick a different text. So, you know, how does that affect translations? What what are kind of the options that are out there, and and why does it matter? what your source translation? What what sources your translation drew from?
0: So, I'll, there's like three different major ones. Let's try that. There's a Nestle-Allen, which I don't know if they're still doing it, but they used to update that every three years, which means that when they're updating it every three years, what they're functionally saying is the Word of God is constantly changing or changing on a periodic basis of every three years. We know it's going to change, and so therefore we have to change the Greek, which then they'll choose a version of that Greek to then translate. The UBS, the United Bible Society, they also have one. They do it less frequently than the Nestle-Allen, but they also update it. And then there's like the Byzantine or the Texas Receptus group that tends to be far more static than those other three. So part of it is what is God doing with his word? And all
2: those are Greek texts. All those are Greek texts. The Hebrew text is pretty... It was. Now
0: there's, now there's a group that's pushing to change the Hebrew text, too, but that one still isn't nearly like the Greek. So you're right. It's the three Greek texts is what I was talking about. And one thing that, to recognize is just why they change, because the way you get a doctorate in Greek is you discover something new. That's, that's how you're supposed to always get a doctorate is that you add something new to the field, well, if you're adding to something new to the field of ancient languages, the best way to get a doctorate is to say, this word and this verse was wrong. If you can convince people or write a paper why they should be convinced, even if they're not convinced, then you, you added to the knowledge of the subject. And so there's a lot of academic pressure to change the text. But it doesn't mean it's necessarily getting better. It just means there's academic pressure to change the text. And so the people that are choosing those texts, they're choosing those for various reasons too. One is to be more modern, they want to pick a text that they go, look, this is the newest scholarship has said this, they're relying on that scholarship. And then there's other ones that go, you know, has God hidden his word from the church? Should we expect there to be new discoveries of the word of God?
3: And you're not talking about new discoveries about like the a new m-
0: book. <laughs> or, or or even like new discoveries
3: about the meaning of, of the words. You're you're talking about like literally the that the Greek the, itself, the source Greek that God communicated at one point, we have rediscovered, and actually it wasn't what we thought it was for two thousand years, and now it's different, and it, and it'll be different in three years,
0: right? Again, and and you know you see this kind of this idea that it was lost. You see this in the Old Testament a few times. One is in Second Kings twenty two eight. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And so they hadn't—they lost it, right? And so there's kind of this idea that, that we lost the, the Bible and that now we have to keep rediscovering it. And we're still in the process of rediscovering it. We still don't have it. We still have to work on it. Every three years we have to update it. But I don't think that's the New Covenant. (laughs) That's an Old Covenant problem, not the New Covenant problem. You look at the promise of the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In the Old Covenant, the people hated the law of God. Israel hated the law of God almost all the time. In the New Covenant, the promise is you'll love the law of God. You'll love his word. First Peter 2 talks about how you'll desire it like a mother's milk. And so if the people, if there have been saved since Christ was here, we should expect a level of preservation of the word that would be a lot different because people like look and go, well, it, they kept losing it in the Old Testament. Why can't we lose it now? And I would just argue that, that God has made different promises He's made different promises to his people in their response to the word. And it means that, you know, Timothy or Paul commands Timothy, go find men that will teach others also. Keep the form of sound words that I've given to you. And it's saying that Timothy failed. And I think that's a pretty dangerous view of the new covenant and what God has promised in the new covenant and the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth. That I don't think we've lost the word of God.
2: And the other thing, too, is when they lost it, they found it in the temple, so it was like, like, oh, we don't. I mean, we don't have the Bible anymore. Oh, oh we found it in the library. You know, it's like it,
0: it wasn't. <laughs> it's like Luther who goes into the library at the university and goes, "What's this old book? Nobody's checked this out for two hundred years." The Bible was in the library.
2: Yeah, and the and the thing, t- and it wasn't like people were using. Everyone had a copy of the law, but then actually, oh wait. It was all wrong. We found the original, and everyone thought they had it, but they didn't have it. The thing is, people didn't care about it, so they just left it in the temple and didn't use it.
0: The heart of the new covenant is God has given us a desire for his law. He's written it on our hearts. He's written it on our minds. So the idea that the church would lose it, just it just doesn't match.
2: And it's also about the power of God, because if God gave the Scripture as his word to his people, then how can we say that for two thousand years he actually didn't want us to have it? And you know, now in the twenty first century, now we actually can, can get back to what he actually wrote.
3: And the the whole appeal to critical texts, uh, to to texts that are under constant, right. sco- yeah, under under constant revision, is really something that was. I mean, you you could point to our modern version of it, at least going back to say german higher criticism of the 19th century which is by a bunch of people who deny that god is god right you know? and and so so you've got a bunch of atheists who are saying hey you know what did god really say which is the oldest trick in the <laughs> book literally <laughs> but and, if you
0: can undermine the word of god that's the most powerful way to overthrow the church if you can say hey, did god
3: really say that if you can if you can plant that little bug then
0: hey, everything's up for grabs. And I forget there's something like I'm pretty sure it's around twenty thousand, know, yeah, partial manuscripts or full manuscripts of the Bible. And something like nineteen thousand eight hundred of them are almost all identical. It's not like there's actually that much variation. There's a little variation. And it's there's a few texts that are really bad. <laughs> And those are the ones that they're trying to pull and bring into the text. That was the common text that everybody, that the church in Byz- the Byzantine Empire, right, they continued to speak Greek until the end of the Byzantine Empire. It was the, the text they had the whole time. That's by far the most text that we have. There's nothing else that's even close to it. And they all pretty much agree with very few exceptions, which are pretty clearly typos. I mean, copios or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> but but – they want to take those other two hundred and go. No, these are the authoritative ones, not the ones that were actually used by the church. And so, again, it's it's does God change people's hearts so they have a desire to keep His word? And if they do, then why would they throw it away?
2: And, but the good news is that you know that the changes between all the variations aren't that major. You know, the, the difference between your translation philosophy has a lot more impact on how how accurate your Bible, your English Bible, is. To the inspired word of God than what Greek text they used. Not to say that the Greek text isn't important, but it's not like you know. I mean, you know, every word is important, every letter is important. But you know, you, the major doctrines aren't hinging on the changes. That At are going At least, not right
0: now.
3: Right, but,
2: right. But who knows? Know. Who, I mean, if it's open, and I would can actually right, and
0: I would actually argue that that it also major doctrines aren't hinging on it now because we've changed the definition of major doctrines. The more we understand God, the better we understand him, the more minor doctrines become major. In other words, if you're a first grader getting the alphabet right, that's major to understand. Every one of those is major doctrines, but guess what when you're a, when you're graduating from high school if you go, "I know my ABCs." They're not going to go, "You know all the major doctrines." They're going to go, "You don't know the basic teachings." And so part of it is that the church is dumbed down so much that they aren't affecting anything. If the church advances like it should, they're more likely to have impact. And, I I mean,
3: at the risk of being controversial, the major major doctrines depends on a sense where the fight is right now. I mean, you've heard us talking a lot about gender-neutral language, and the only reason we're doing that is because that's where a fight is. On this matter, if we were if we were recording this podcast two thousand one hundred and eighty years ago, we could have been talking about time neutral Bibles and translation philosophies. You know, there there are other ways that you can really screw up a, a Bible translation besides gender neutrality. That's just where the fight is on this. At this right, moment. because
0: right. I remember twenty years ago the big fight was really we were going to teach people to read the NIV when it's so it's such written at such an uh, immature level and that's where the whole fight was about was that the NIV was an intentional movement to dumb down the church. And there have been movements before that too, but I mean I remember 20 years ago nobody was talking about gender inclusivity. What they were talking about was, you know, <laughs> really you're going to teach people to use this Bible, this Bible is about dumbing them down.
2: But, you know, but again gender news uh gender inclusivity, I don't think it's really much of a Greek text issue.
0: No. I would agree completely.
2: So it's more: do we want to translate what the Greek text says, or what we wish that it says?
1: The primary thing that challenging the Greek text has done is it's caused us to doubt the power of the Holy Spirit.
0: Yes, I mean, and it's caused the, and it was more of a wedge issue that drove in, that caused people to go, "Oh, I should have all these translations." I mean, it, you know, the enemies of the church have used it to cause this plethora of translations that has not been helpful. But I'm not saying none of the translations are helpful. I'm saying this plethora of translations isn't helpful.
2: And if you're looking at, you know, the Greek text, it's, I mean, off of the, I mean, all, most of the major translations except King James and New King James are off of the newer critical text. I'm not mm-hmm. sure of any that that aren't. I mean, there's, there's King James, New King James, other edits of the King James. but.
0: So let's talk about the King James since we kind of were there.
3: You mean you want to reward? our listeners who've made it this far. Exactly. Since we said we'd talk about
0: specific, (laughs) we said we'd talk about specific translations. So here we finally get to it. So the King James, right? The big thing about the King James, that the biggest problem that I have with the King James is that people want to make it as a second inspiration. They want to say King James only and say that, that somehow it's the perfect translation. It is not the perfect translation. There's definitely errors in the translation. I pointed out one. It should be Jacob, not James, although that's an error that everybody's adopted. But, you know, we we should not think of a second inspiration. This was not a second inspiration by God. This was a group of men that that had various pressures There were reformers that were pushing on them hard they had to compete with the geneva bible which was coming from a much more reformed viewpoint of terms of translation that constrained what they could do it was it was a bunch of men acting like men having to deal with their biases having their bias constrained in certain ways and they produced a translation that transformed the world but that doesn't mean it was perfect
3: can we just say that the the philosophy or the doctrine of kjv only is a heresy yes Okay, <laughs> done.
0: I can say that very easily.
1: I think that, yeah, that.
3: Okay, so KJV only is a heresy, but.
1: It could still be your favorite translation. Yeah. And I mean, in and fact,
2: I mean, I mean, and people forget that it is still the number one Bible translation by a lot.
1: And, and I think KJV onlyism has actually caused people to sometimes be embarrassed to like the KJV, which is sad because it's a great translation. I mean, it's. it's has a lot going for it i mean it's still i i mean for me personally it's still my favorite translation to use some of it has to do with the fact that i grew up on it some of it has to do with the fact that they did try to preserve i like the the and the thou and the you and you. i mean being able to know whether you're talking about you know a plural you or you're talking about it's just an a, a singular that's really useful having that in the text i like
0: the word order that you have to think about
1: rather than just i mean it don't want
0: it predigested. You can think about it. You can figure out what it was saying because right. a lot of times the word order is different.
2: And the other thing about the KJV is although it does have biases, a lot of those biases are not modern biases. I mean right. not there's not many, you know, orthodox Anglicans out there who were like, wow, thankfully it says bishop because, you know, we, we're all about bishops. You know, because th- it says, you know, it has bishop in there for a real reason because it wants people to think, oh, bishops are biblical. You know, there's you know there's the passage in James where James says my verdict is, I think it's verdict, but, you know, where, you know, actually he wasn't saying this is my verdict. He's saying this he is my, my opinion. opinion yeah. but, but, you know, we're not, you know, we don't have as much of an issue with, With episcopacy these days So you know that's an advantage of the King James That the biases you get are not Modern biases
0: Might as well bash it some more Well even though that's what I read at home So I yeah But I mean they all also They can arbitrarily change Words at times so you have to be really careful That you look at the underlying Hebrew word And it was the same word but they You know even in the same sentence where it's Continuing a thought they'll switch Sometimes and they'll change words And so, you know, there's ways to translate it better. So nobody should look at the King James and go, it could not be translated better. That simply isn't true. It could be translated better. Yeah, when the
2: Puritans – well, there are two things that the Puritans wanted in the New Bible translation that King James said, you may not do this. And one was to translate words consistently, um, which – and I think – I don't know – I think a lot of other translations have followed the King James example and not done that. But he said you need to have – it needs to sound majestic – that's more important than using the same word, using words consistently. And the other one is they wanted to translate the names. You know, when it is just when the name is just a word in Hebrew or it's Greek. It's like the just deceiver
0: for it. Jacob. Just right. call him the deceiver rather than calling him Jacob. Right.
2: But he did not approve of that. You know, we can point a lot of fingers at the King James, but for the you know systema- systemic errors in the King James are things that a lot of most other translations have followed. Right. Like, you know, like I think one thing in the King James is they ch- always translate, you know, the word for slave. They're, in the New Testament, they're translating it servant.
0: And the Old Testament. And the Old
2: Testament. <laughs> but, I, yeah, so, so you know, they're translating the word for slave servant. But what translation doesn't translate that word servant?
1: So what
0: about the NKJV?
1: I don't like it as much, and, and, and we use it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting. I mean, just I'll actually just throw this in as a side. It's interesting how churches end up settling on stuff. One of the reasons why we have it is 15 years ago, whenever our church did a vote on what we should use, we found out years later that one of the elders who t- took the vote took everybody's vote that said KJV and turned it to New King James Version, and we actually probably would have been using King James for a long time. I mean, it's and and then there's this historical reason, some of the reasons you end up with a translation can be for historical reasons and for us by the time we've been using it for a long time and people had had their kids memorize things switching was going to have a cost and you know i'd be and you have to weigh
0: those costs between what's the cost of switching versus what's the cost of you say this is a better translation fine but you say there's a cost of switching so you have to you have to weigh those these aren't easy answers right and you know god really confused languages that's one thing that i want to keep hitting on is god really confused it that's why there's that cost
2: I mean the main advantage to the new King James, I mean there are you know, verses here and there that they improve, but I mean the main thing is making the language easier to understand. And you know, I grew up reading the King James, my kids read the King James, but for someone who's not used to the King James, it can it can be an obstacle.
0: And a lot of times, you know, when I preach in the United States the churches other than Reformation, I'd be more likely to use the King James. But when I go to Nigeria, I use the New King James because a lot of them read the King James, but they don't understand it at all. Well, they have the King James, I should say, but they don't understand it at all. So I intentionally use the New King James because it reduces the level that I have to explain. But again, it's a difference between going, okay, hey, if you have if the only Bible that you have is the NIV, read the NIV. It's better than not having it not reading, right? And it's kind of like if I go over there and preach to, to a group of people for two days and I'm spending all the time discussing the nuances of the King James, that doesn't really seem to be productive.
3: Would, I mean, on that point, if the only Bible you have is
0: the message, do you read the message? It's not a Bible. Okay. That's what <laughs> I, I was getting, trying to get you. to. Part of it is I would be that antagonistic towards the message because Eugene Peterson was explicitly blaspheming God in the marketing of it. This is the Bible God would have written if he wrote it today, meaning he's saying literally he put himself in the place of God. It's a blasphemous book. It is not the Bible
1: other issues with the new king james version <laughs> um it, it it does use some of the like i said while it's still using the like the byzantine text it does use i think and i'm not sure a which, little bit it's not very I mean, much that's what I mean. but they, it does use and a some lot of, the,
0: of it's in the center column where they'll just put it as a yeah someday. they'll put liner notes in
1: so i mean, but I mean the best th- argument against the new
2: king james is that you know it's it was it's the copyright is owned by what thomas nelson you know some godless company
1: this well, is why Thomas people, Nelson was sold for well, four hundred and fifty million dollars, or something. To uh, right. I, it's owned by Rupert Murdoch now. Is right. it? well,
2: was a subsidiary, right? But, right. I understand but what, but whatever. But the <laughs> point, but the point is, these people don't realize who the King James of the King James Bible was, which was a guy who was more wicked than you know the, the owners of the New King James Bible. So it's he not had more really power to issue. be
0: wicked than than Rupert Murdoch does. He not maybe maybe not natu- the nature to be more wicked, but anyway.
3: <laughs> that said. You know, there, It is a knock against any, any modern translation when you are comparing it to older translations that a lot of the, those times with the older translations, there was a lot more personally at stake for the translators. Like some of them risk death to be involved in a translation of the Bible into vernacular. And most of our modern scholars are not facing death.
0: They risk being millionaire. <laughs> they
3: yeah they they risk losing a book deal you know or getting a really big book deal. But but you know the the stakes are different and that that does matter.
2: There are some people who's like oh we should go back to the Geneva or something like that where the people you know the king where they had more at stake than the King James translators. Uh, but I mean aside from the fact that as you go beyond the King James. I mean, the King James had such an impact on the English language that you start to get a lot more archaic language in things like the Geneva Bible or Wycliffe or Tyndale. But the other thing is, I mean, translation is hard, and these earlier translations, uh, you know, the translators were working hard at it, but they were they were done by a much smaller group of people with a lot less time, you know, even the King James, the, you know, the amount of time they spent on the King James versus the Geneva must have been, you know, substantial, you know, a lot more people spending a lot more time studying and the reality is it, it does produce a better product.
0: The King James Bible would not be nearly as good without the Geneva Bible because in the end they had to answer with because they were trying to to produce a product that they could convince people was better enough that it wasn't just let's honor the king and do it. The Christians weren't going to give up a good Bible for a junk for junk, and so the King James translators were really constrained by the existence of the junk. Wait, are Bible. you
3: saying after this whole podcast that there was actually a time in history when more translations was better?
0: Yeah, okay. And I would argue that maybe now I, it's just one of the things that concerns me right now is what we're getting when we do new translations is we get greater fragmentation. If we could get the church to unify around a translation, I think that has huge amounts of power. It's the opposite of the Tower of Babel, and, and I think that it's, it's doing so much damage to the church that we're fragmented, and I just don't see anybody being academically rigid enough, theologically sound enough to actually come up with a translation that actually pushes to a unity in something better than the King James persecution starts, it wouldn't surprise me if that happens. But without persecution, without there being skin in the game, blood that's going to be shed, I just don't see that happening.
2: And and they're not – the things that they're interested in updating in the new translation are not the issues with the older translations. Right. I mean, by and large. I mean, I'm sure you can find plenty of verses here and there. But, you know, the errors that are throughout just aren't the errors that they're addressing.
0: And it's interesting. This is throughout the world. I mean, in Germany it's true. And in uh, Nigeria there's the new – House of Iba and the old House of Iba, Spanish. Bible, I think it's Spanish, Spanish. It's the same thing. I mean, this is happening all over the world. That there was a push where people were going at one point in time when there was a lot more persecution. Where they're going, we need an accurate Word of God, and you know, it would require the same level of persecution to get a better product. Would be my guess. How about the NASB?
3: I grew up in in a lot of churches that used the NASB. Um, it's a it's a formal equivalence. It's it's probably more formal equivalent even than in KJV, um, but it doesn't use the same source texts. It uses a critical text. Um, my issue with it now is, honestly, it's more stylistic. In a sense, there is no English speaker ever who speaks like the NASB. It is the clunkiest. Most wouldn't there's you you don't come away from it thinking wow that's that was hard to understand because it was so beautiful and majestic that's just that's just hard to understand, <laughs> so.
0: and it was deliberate right the the new King James they were deliberately trying to bring forward some of the translation philosophy that the Word of God had to have a majesty to it it had to have had a ability to memorize and stuff that the n a s b that wasn't part of their translation philosophy they just said. We're going to translate it as accurately as we can. Doesn't matter if it Yeah, you know, doesn't matter if it flows. They didn't care about euphonics at all.
3: Right. You know, I mean the extreme of that might be like Holman Christian standard or something. But but NASB is leaning that way. And as such, I think it's just if you really want to internalize the Word of God, it's hard to love it on that level.
0: A favorite translation now is the ESV. It's one that I have a a great deal of problem with.
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, it leans against everything that I just criticized the NASB for. It tries to be beautiful, but...
0: And what what really bothers me about it is that it's sold as a Reformed Bible, but it it undermines, like, the basic translation philosophy that's in the Westminster Confession, that's in the Second London Baptist Confession. Both of those say that the Greek and the Hebrew... The original tongue is what's authoritative. And it really bothers me that, that these people who say they're coming from a Reformed view, that they at times translate the Septuagint, which is a bad translation, rather than translating the Hebrew. And an example of that is Deuteronomy 32, 43. And, you know, the NKJV says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. The ESV says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The problem is, is that verse that they translated is not Hebrew. They translated Greek. And the the Hebrew translators, when they go to translate to the Septuagint, it's basically Deuteronomy 32 is, I'm going to cast you out as the people of God, and I'm going to Give it to the Gentiles. And so they change it from rejoice, O Gentiles, to rejoice with him, O heavens. That is not, it doesn't say that in any way, shape, or form. There's no way you can twist the Hebrew to say that. But the translators didn't want to say what God said. So they used what these unbelievers wrote. To say, this is what we're going to say God said, that's a really dangerous thing because it's one of those checks and balances on sins and biases. They basically said, we don't have that check. We're not going to take that. We just don't agree here. It can't be talking about it going to the Gentiles. It has to be about Israel, so therefore we'll use the Septuagint.
3: So you're saying this is a case where the bias of the translators of the Septuagint 2,000 and some odd years ago is plainly obvious— and yet, modern translators have decided to just
1: pull that bias forward,
0: right? Because and they know it's wrong. If they looked at the Hebrew, there's no question that is not a proper translation.
1: And like you're saying, the the, the confessions are very clear that the original Hebrew and the Greek are to be gone. The Hebrew for the Old Testament,
2: <laughs> and Greek for the New Testament. <laughs> yes, not, that I'm is what it says. Yes. Not the Greek
1: for the Old <laughs> Testament, <laughs> right? Which is which is what they're doing. I mean, right. they they, are and they trans- have a footnote that they, they say that's what they did. A translation. Instead of looking at the original text.
0: And it's because they're, they're so dispensational in their eschatology. They can't accept the eschatology that says that, that the Gentiles replace Israel. And so they, they change it. And so they change it here. And if they're willing to put their biases that far forward here, where else do they do it that's more subtle? That's my concern about the ESV. They're willing to do it in extremely blatant ways. So where else are they doing it that's not as blatant, that's harder to pick up?
3: The ESV is also, especially in the New Testament, has leaned pretty hard towards the, the gender neutrality. It's not as as blatant as some translations, not as bad as the NIV, but it's intentional in cases where where the word man is obviously used in a gender-inclusive sense. They decide to translate it things like men and women— Brothers gets translated brothers and sisters. But but then there's other cases where actually what happens is, well, that bleeds over, and they do a little bit of interpreting and say, okay, this is a gender-inclusive term, when it's really not. And right. So so it changes the meaning of the Word of God.
0: I mean, just like in English, we have man, and then we have male and female. I mean, it's the same thing in Greek, and so you they could have been explicit if they wanted to. And what they're trying to do is— their goal is, are they're participating in? Because I think it's actually the goal of some other people, like the NIV translators and the the new NASB translators. Their goal is to change the language so that it is not a masculine based language. And here they're just, I mean, the ESV does part of that too. It's a very dangerous thing.
1: So, what about the NIV?
0: I don't like the NIV. <laughs> I don't like the NIV. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody like the NIV? Well, I
2: mean, it's the only one that made the list that isn't even a formal equivalent trying to translate word by word and into reinterpreting it to make phrase by
1: phrase. And, and it is, I mean, as of a few years ago, according to Barnett, was the second most popular translation after the King James Version. That's why I put it on here. <laughs> and that's, what I, that's what I was going to say. Is, I mean, it's, it's on here because it's, there was a period of time, at least, where it was incredibly popular. And I believe it's still I very popular. It's
0: still popular. I think the ESV may have taken some of that popularity away, but I it's hard for me to believe that that it's not more popular. And it's it's yeah, you know, knowing the history is worthwhile because the NIV, when they originally were going to do the NIV, they were going to do a gender neutral when they originally did the NIV. And basically the evangelicals, leading evangelicals, came up and said, You're not doing that. We're going to denounce it, and so they promised that they would never do a gender-neutral one, and now they have, and they're going to phase out the NIV. They didn't NIV. do
1: a gender-neutral NIV. They did a gender-neutral TNIV. And then they're going to stop publishing
0: <laughs> the NIV so that they forced people oh, to it. Right. And so, it was a lie. I mean, they lied. They lied. They deceived. They, and they were originally, the second time they were going to do the NIV, but what they ended up, so that they would not have the public battle as public, because it got pretty public. But what they basically said is, we won't call it the NIV, we'll call it the TNIV. But then they still phased out the NIV. So, you know, it, it's, right. still, it's still, they are pushing an agenda. And at the same time, I read the NIV, the first time I read through the Bible, I read through the Bible, I read the NIV, and I learned things from it. But it's also going to peak how far you can go. Because in the end, you're taking opinions of men that that some of them were at war with God. Certainly the publisher was at war with God in lots of ways because they didn't, you know, they wanted to eliminate gender and things, which God is against, the elimination of gender. And so the NIV and all these, and one of the reasons I put it on there was it is worth, you know, God still uses these things because I've, I've seen people that read the Word of God. And you go, what does that mean? And they can't. They can't explain anything because they don't have the Spirit of God. And somebody else can read the NIV. When I read the NIV the first time that I read the Bible through, and I read the NIV, I learned all kinds of things. But we have a duty to be faithful to the text, but we also have to recognize it's the Spirit that guides the truth. And those two are not contradictory, uh, contradictory to each other because we're supposed to be faithful, we're supposed to do the work we're supposed to do, we're supposed to be wise in the selections that we make. But at the same time, you can listen to a sermon by a really bad preacher and you can learn a lot from it because the Holy Spirit opens the meaning of the text and not the preacher.
1: Right. It's like when we talk about the you know, Jesus using the Septuagint and the apostles using it at times. We have no reason to believe that we're going to people and going, You should really be reading the Septuagint. It was that the Septuagint was there. The Septuagint was being used. So, I mean, like, and that would be my right. attitude towards the NIV is there may be times where the right thing to do, you may be in a place where someone puts, has is using the NIV, and you can quote that verse to show them something and prove something to them, but you're not going to go around to people and go, hey, you should really get the NIV Bible. Hey, you should really, I mean, and, and so those are very real different. Those are very different things and very different ways of viewing something.
0: And just like there was a point in time where there was a big push throughout the world, To actually, you know, at the time that the King James was, at the time where the Spanish Bible, the French Bible, there was a push where, you know, in a hundred years where a lot of people did it. The NIV kind of went through the whole world the same way, where everybody was doing an NIV equivalent. And so you go to different countries. And like I talked about in Nigeria, there's a house in the northern part of Nigeria. The house is the language. And there's an NIV Hausa and there's an NIV King James. And the NIV Hausa is like a lot worse because there were a lot fewer people that knew the, the House of King James level translation. And so they couldn't put the constraint on the NIV. In the U.S., in English, it is more constrained because they're trying to sell it to people who read the King James or had some exposure to the King James. We talked a lot about Bible translations because that is supposed to be the basis of a Christian's life that Christians should desire the Word of God. They should desire the real Word of God, not one that's twisted, not one that's somebody else's opinion. There's a constant push in the church to move back to the idea of a pope that somebody like Eugene Peterson says, this is what you're supposed to believe, instead of searching the scriptures for yourself. So translation really matters, but it only matters if you actually search the scriptures for yourself. That's the responsibility of every Christian. So we thank you for for listening to this episode, but make sure you actually read the Word. That's where the true understanding, the deep understanding of who God is comes from, from the reading of the Word. Thanks for joining us.
1: This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app.